Hey, everybody, welcome back to how to communicate like you give a damn or just in general, just it's it's a call to action. The title of the podcast is actually a call to action. Communicate like you give a damn. And as Jane Elliott, one of our previous guests said, well, I do give a damn. (laughs) And I think our guest today is going to feel the same way. Um, I have Mercy here and I'm going to step aside and let her introduce herself in just a second. But it's kind of a fun backstory. Like I was speaking at PRSA Icon in October of 2023. And um, I, I co-presented with Anita Fort Sanders, who's also been a guest on Communicate Like You Give a Damn. So check out that episode if you'd like to hear more about what we talked about. But we co-facilitated this session at the end when we were handing out books because Anita um, provided a testimonial in the book. Mercy walked up and she handed me her card and I saw the name of her company. I went, wait, stop. (laughs) Uh, I want to get to know you better. I need to learn and understand what your work is and the firm that you run um, and the impact, the the work that you're driving. So with that kind of warm up, Mercy, please, you know, let us get to know you, your background and what your firm does. Thanks for being here. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me, Kim. So hello, folks. I'm so excited to be here today. Um, You know, my name is Mercy Quay. I am the founder and CEO of The Narrative Project. That's the name of the agency that Kim saw on the business card, The Narrative Project. And, you know, we are a small agency in New Haven, Connecticut, based in New Haven, Connecticut. But, you know, we we punch above our weight. Um, And I'll say we have a staff right now of 21 people, but we are um, servicing, we have serviced more than 60 nonprofit and mission-driven organizations um, around the region and around the globe, really. Um, And so there have been organizations like ACLU Connecticut here um, in our state and the Human Rights Funders Network that had offices in Columbia and in um, uh, New York and uh, Planned Parenthood, organizations with names that you're familiar with, but then organizations who are sort of smaller and um, looking for how, looking to ways, looking at ways uh, to get impactful work done around the state. Uh, organizations like the uh, Connecticut um, Voices for Children, who played an integral part for getting baby bonds passed here in the state, mm. or CONCAT, the Connecticut um, Council for Arts and Technology, um, or CONCORP, their sister organization, the Connecticut um, Community Outreach and Revitalization Program. And so organizations that are really interested in making impact on the ground and across the state. And so we've, we, we punch above our class, even though we are a agency that's just five years old and having a staff of 20 people. And a lot of people, when they see the name of the Narrative Project, they're really interested in how did you come up with that? Because, you know, from the industry, narrative is something we talk about all the time. But, you know, the name, the Narrative Project, it feels so obvious. Like, why didn't anyone else come up with that? (laughs) (laughs) You're probably shocked when you went in to search the URL. It's like, that is really still available. available? (laughs) 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 And so, and so um, I like to tell this story about how we came about you know, in 2015, um, I was working full time as a communications associate with the Connecticut Coalition for Achievement Now. And if anyone is familiar with the 50 Can family of uh, nonprofit organizations working for um, education advocacy, uh, ConCan was the first of the 50 Can organizations. Mm. Um, and so I was uh, spearheading communications for that organization, and I believe that was the year that Eric Garner was killed by police officers in New York. And at the time, working full-time in communications but caring deeply about uh, race and identity, I said, all right, well, there is this sort of outcry for community right now, and how do we come together as a community and maybe just talk. Maybe we just talk. And so I put out a call to this community here in New Haven and I said, 
you know, I'm going to be leading a conversation about race and identity, but specifically under the theme of who controls the black narrative, because this was, you know, 2015, Black Lives Matter is kind of still new, about, you know, two or three years new, um, the trial of uh, Trayvon Martin, and this is kind of interesting because either today or yesterday is the anniversary of Trayvon yes. Martin. Yeah. So, you know, this is about two years after Trayvon Martin's trial. So we, we are getting to know a little bit more about race and identity through the lens of the Black Lives Matter organizers. And one of the things that um, keeps coming up in the industry and keeps coming up in the field of anti-racism and DEI is who controls the Black narrative. So I said, if we're going to have this conversation, I want it to be under the theme of who controls the Black narrative. And so I figured we would have maybe 15 people at best, 20 people come out to this coffee shop and we'll have a guided and facilitated conversation. And I have had some um, training and facilitation, and, but I'm also a communicator, so I'm bringing that skill set as well. Um, and I was like, we're going to have a really interesting conversation with just 15 of us at best, 20 people. And I thought it was going to be small enough, Kim, that I didn't even call ahead to the coffee shop to let them know we were going to <laughs> be there that day. I thought it was going to be small enough. But to my surprise, and also, you know, you know, to my pleasure, we ended up having about 60 people show up to this small coffee shop. <laughs> I <laughs> love had, it. Who had no awareness that we were going to be taking over the coffee shop that day. <laughs> And shout out to Book Trader Cafe in New Haven because they really just accommodated us and, and really made sure that we were taken care of. But if anyone knows Book Trader Cafe, it is, uh, I mean, it probably, you know, 300 square feet at best. And, you know, there's like 60 people, standing room only. People are excited. I and I coming, you know, from this background of having some facilitation training, I was like, I need to... I need to have a speaking stick of some kind, right? There needs to be order. And on the way to the coffee shop, I said, you know, I don't have a speaking stick, but there's this soccer ball in the back of my car. Um, <laughs> we're going to use a soccer ball as a yes, speaking one does, stick. You know. <laughs> <laughs> and so there are literally, there are pictures on the narrative project of, uh, Facebook page of us passing around this soccer ball. And I still have people at the end of the conversation, people sign the ball and I have lots of signatures on this ball. And so we start off with this conversation. It's a really, really diverse group of people. I mean, we've got folks from all walks of life just here to talk about who controls the black narrative. And, you know, I'm facilitating this conversation. We have some really cool themes come up. We had some really cool topics come up and folks were just really interested in um, if they weren't black, how could they, how could they be a part of a movement to support the black narrative? If they were black, um, how can they support the black narrative from sort of inside, right? Mm -hmm. And not just who controls it, but what is it? What are we saying about ourselves mm -hmm. as a people, as a culture, as an ethnicity? And so we, we really, we shut down the, we closed the coffee shop and then folks still wanted some place to go. And so we were standing outside of the Yale Center for British Art and just having this continued conversation where people were eager to continue talking. Eventually from that one conversation in 2015, um, in 2017, I saw this um, need because I spent about two years facilitating uh, privilege walks and designing workshops that folks were asking me to come out to their staff retreat or their youth group or, you know, various things. Folks were asking me to um, facilitate these workshops and um, really work, them, work through a DEI training that was rooted in anti-racism. And this is before 2020, so the word anti-racism was sort of new and budding. And so folks were familiar with DEI, but not as familiar with anti-racism. So I'm going from place to place. And in my nine to five, I'm doing uh, communication, um, usually for nonprofits and mission-driven organizations. But from my five to nine, I'm facilitating these DEI and anti-racist workshops. So by time 27 comes around, I'm saying, all right, what do we, what I realize organizations really need isn't this one day retreat or this half day workshop 
what organizations really need is an integrated communications plan that that situates DEI and anti-racism at the core of it, right? Because as a communicator, as a professional communicator and a pu public relations practitioner, I realize that communication, you know, that's the bedrock for how we get things done in an organization. So if we integrate DEI and public relations into those communications plans, then what we have is something that can start to change uh, narratives. Right, something that can start to move a needle because we're not thinking about this as a one-day workshop, a half-day workshop, a staff retreat. We're thinking about this as a year-round initiative, um, and we're thinking about this as here are our key publics that we are interested in um, reaching throughout the year, and what do we have to do to reach them throughout the year? Um, and so, in 2017, I decided to take on this work full time um, under the name The Narrative Project because you know, as an evolution from the black narrative, it became clear, you know, we're having a, these ongoing community conversations. It became clear that we're not just interested in uh, narratives as it pertains to blackness, but we are also interested in queer narratives and we're also interested in religious narratives and we're interested in race and identity uh, away from just blackness. But how do we bring in, you know, a Latina dad into that? And how do we bring in, you know, um, an AAPI perspective into that? And so we um, sort of sat down with the folks who would help me facilitate uh, these workshops, we sort of sat down and said the narrative project is the, the, the natural evolution to um, this work, especially as a communications agency. In 2019, um, I solidified um, ourselves as a formal agency, and a lot of people sort of asked me, well, what's the difference between what you did in 2017 to 2019? Well, the difference is I was freelancing, and <laughs> I was by myself in 2017, right. and I established as an agency bringing on staff in 2019. And so we are a five-year-old agency this year, but we've been sort of doing this work since 2015, sort of in, uh, implementing these uh, DEI um, workshops and working with communities to have these deeply impactful conversations, escalating up to workshops, escalating up to retreats, escalating up to comms plans, escalating up to public relations strategies. And that's where we are today. Well, what an incredible story. What a, a, The soccer ball image will forever, you know, be ingrained <laughs> in my mind. Um, <clears throat> speaking as somebody who has Native American heritage, I can say the narrative around Native Americans and indigenous people whether it's Canada or the United States, is just right. the invisibility, the historical right. aspects of weaving baskets and not having an understanding that we are still here. And they and and Native Americans look like me. Like if you mm -hmm. watch Reservation Dogs, there's a character named White Steve. So I'm like White Kim, <laughs> um, but <laughs> who's in the process of reclaiming that 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 heritage because my grandmother was a, is a survivor was. She's passed um, a survivor of the residential school in northern Oklahoma. Mm. So she was, mm. you know, the culture was beaten out of her. Right. So she right. did not pass that on to us deliberately to protect us. There was a safety but, aspect to that. There right? was a safety aspect. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Like, keep your head down. Don't talk about it. Even though she looked very, very, it was unmistakable that she was native. And assimilate as much as possible, right? Yeah, exactly. And so she did not pass that on to us, but we're in a place, uh, my cousins, this generation of like desperately wanting to reclaim, learn. Um, and I came out looking like my dad. And if I had come out looking like my mom, I would have had a different experience, mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> you know, in society. So I use I use the privilege. You were talking about privilege walks. I use that privilege of coming out and looking like my dad who has ancestry from Norway and Britain, you know, from this place of privilege and power and leverage to help reconcile the marginalized part of my ancestry who has, is invisible, who is ignored, who is desperate to survive, but also has this communal and relationship framework in their community and the way that they survive. I come from survivors, right? You know, mm -hmm. so remembering that and honoring that and, and bringing that reconciliation into the work, I think is really important. So important. I would love to hear more about 
what came out of that coffee shop conversation that you can relate to? I have, I have two questions based on what you just shared. This is the first one. Totally off script. Uh, you know, I, you know, I come from a documentary filmmaker background. So it's like, yeah, sure. I have some questions, but I just allow the story that wants to be told to be told. So and you and I you are for... similar in that way because I come from a reporting background, right? Okay. So, sure. Okay. I've got questions prepared, but what you said was really interesting. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. So what were some takeaways that, that you can recall from that, that coffee shop? Uh, shout out to independent coffee shops. I support yeah. them. I love them. Um, uh, I, if you're watching on YouTube, you can see that I have a coffee mug from an independent um, coffee shop. But it, you know, what were some of the key takeaways from that night or that day, that, that, that time when you, uh, that you can relate to communicators who are working with communication plans right now and they're wanting to integrate. Um, um, but first they have to understand what came out of that coffee shop experience of, of defining what the narrative is, black narrative, any, any other narratives that may, may have come out of that um, uh, that night, but like, I think sometimes we leapfrog over the actual work that needs to happen. Mm -hmm. So kind of naming, you know, where the bias can come in, mm -hmm. where we don't see it, especially if you have, you know, less melanin in your skin, like I do, you know, we're going to miss a lot. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and so what can we do uh, what can we learn from that night that we can that we don't skip over the work and just go right in to fix it, but actually acknowledge where we're missing and where there's majority coding within our comms plans? Absolutely. So it, it is interesting because I think when we ask the question, who controls the black narrative that night, it what you answered depended on your individual experience. A majority of the black and brown folks in the space said, our narratives are crafted for us and sold back to us, right? Say that again, say that again. Crafted for us and sold back to us, right? That the media crafts our narratives, it tells us who to be. Um, and one of the most interesting aspects of that conversation, um, there was a young woman who I didn't know, and I was really excited that the majority of the people that came to the conversation were people I didn't know. But, you know, there was a one woman who came in, and I didn't know her, and she said, and once, you know, she caught the soccer ball, and it was her turn to speak, and she said, sometimes the media holds us to a narrative that no longer exists for our culture, right? And so, you know, the, the aspects of the 60s, Right. When we think about a civil rights movement of our parents and grandparents and who they were at that time. Right. And try to put that narrative on a generation that just isn't the same. Right. Um, and so she she brought forward this idea that I, I don't think I, up until that point I had considered as deeply as I do now that mm. the media holds us to a standard that no longer exists in the culture when it comes mm -hmm. to crafting the black narrative. Um, but on the other hand, if you were white in that room, a lot of, uh, the white people in that room who were, you know, brave for coming out in the first place. And, and, you know, I give them, I give them a lot of credit for being active in the conversation sort of came out with a, you know, I think black people craft the narrative one way or another. We might see what's on the media, but when we interact with black people on a day to day, that's what changes or, um, reconciles or cements the narratives that we've seen on in the media, right? And so uh, a lot of the things I was hearing from the white people in the room were it is, it is unfortunate that the narrative is sort of held by the media, but it is the onus is upon white people to interact with real black people <laughs> to correct the narrative that they're being sold about us as well. Right. And so that's what I appreciated about the that the white perspective in the room. It it was it was observant and it had the acknowledgement that it the onus is on them, the work is on them to interact with real live black people who aren't caricatures, who aren't tropes. Right, who come with living, breathing issues and living, breathing joys, right? Who aren't 
a you know one trick pony or single track voters right people who have intersectionalities that might not just be their practice and so there was a dynamicism in that conversation that had conflict to it but was reconciled at the end um to be this understanding that black that the black narrative is multifaceted. The black narrative is not a monolith. And in order to understand it in its entirety, you need to diversify the types of black people you are involved with. Great. That is that is so great. <laughs> it is, and, and, and there's so much out there, anything that Ava DuVernay does, um, you know, Ibram X. Kendi, you know, has stamped, mm -hmm. uh, recently released, uh, uh, you know, uh, on, on Netflix and there's, there's so much out there. It's just that we have no excuse, yeah. you know, to really be looking at and, and challenging our own <clears throat> understanding mm -hmm. and giving ourselves access. Even if we live in a neighborhood that is primarily white and the church we go to is primarily white, we still have no excuse. Like mm -hmm. it just means that you have to be more intentional. Um, mm -hmm. And as communicators, I feel it's really our role and responsibility to ensure that we have more of a, a, a broad understanding. And especially we're recording this during Black History Month in the U.S. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so many communications miss in our superficial or performative um, and often don't necessarily meet the needs of the community of why there's a Black History Month in the first place. Right. Right. So. Let's let's get a little deeper in this work that your firm does, the narrative project in bringing in anti-racism as a part of the key movement of work, which is communications. What does that look like when you're working with especially communicators or even others who are content creators? Like what what kind of things are you looking for them to do with their communications as it relates to kind of the output, like a, a Black History Month post or yeah. something like that with an anti-racist lens on it. What does that look like? And and how do you show the benefit to communicators mm -hmm. that this work is necessary, urgent, and it is theirs to do? Right. And you said a few things. You said output, and then you said, how do you show the benefit? Really, what we're talking about is how do you measure success? And that's what clients care most about, right? Um, at the Narrative Project, we've done two things. Um, as a starting point, when I was developing the company and I wanted us to be principled, I said, how can I take a practitioner with all of the ways that they've learned how to communicate, all of the ways that they've learned how to be a public relations practitioner, how, how can I take that person and slightly move the needle towards anti-racism? What can be the gradual thing that they do, perhaps on a daily basis? because anti-racism is a practice it's not an achievement it's not a it's not a destination <laughs> there's right? no i literally personally i have to tell you this real quick i literally had a pr agency come to me and say how do we win at dei oh <laughs> first of all it's not a game it's not a game this is people's lives playing. <laughs> there's no but trophy in addition, to that, in addition to that games end that's the thinking there. Like the game ends, and at the and at the end you get the trophy and you get the accolades, and and now you've won, and you don't have to do it again. You can decide not to play the game again. That's not what DEI is. That's not what anti-racism is. It is a journey. It is not a destination. And so for for me, one of the first things that I implemented is something that I call the narrative checklist, mm. and it is sort of like PRSA's code of ethics, or sort of like you know the Hippocratic oath. Do no harm. Mm -hmm. It is the thing that when you put forward a campaign, I want the practitioner to go to this checklist and work through it. Right. Um, this is it is unlike the PRSA code of ethics in that the code of ethics doesn't mandate a a working of it. You understand it and you adopt it, but you don't necessarily work with it. It is not a checklist. It's not a workshop. It's not a worksheet, right? You adopt it and that's great. But what I, what I saw that was lacking was something that the practitioner can interact with and sort of interrogate. And so what the narrative, what the narrative checklist is, it starts with the question, is this necessary? And 
when we think about is this necessary, the places the place where I started was, okay, you have a campaign that you are ready to launch. Check it against this checklist, starting with the question, is it necessary? So for instance, we have the question of Black uh, History Month and folks will put out their, their campaign on, all right, well, you know, here are 10 Black innovators that we're going to feature for the year. The thing that always happens every year, is it necessary, right? Do you have to add to the fodder of highlighting the 10 Black innovators, right? Is that the way we want to approach this campaign? Um, or interacting with the question, is it necessary? As in, does the community you are intending to reach think it's necessary, right? How do you know it's necessary is the sub question to is it, is it necessary? Love it. Love right? it. How do you know? How, do, how can you affirm that? And we go back to impacted communities to affirm that. Um, the next question is, is it truthful and honest? Right? How do you know it's truthful and honest? Right? These aren't, these aren't a do no harm as in a directive. This is a question for you to analyze. It allows you to be working on the campaign actively, right? So we go from, is it necessary to, is it truthful and honest? And each of them has a follow-up question of how do you know? And then there's another question in it that you follow up with, how can we, um, how can we further reduce harm to the impacted community, right? In this, it, it mandates the question, um, it mandates the practitioner identify who the impacted community is, right? Because sometimes we launch campaigns, but we haven't really decided who the, who the campaign is for. We might dive into, you know, Hispanic Heritage Month halfway through September, and we're like, no, this is for the Hispanic community without even really understanding what Hispanic means. And actually, it's not for the Hispanic community. It's about the Hispanic community for white viewers, right? That's so, right. Understand yeah. who this is for, not about, but for, right? Yes. And so you ask yourself the question, how can we further minimize harm and further increase just narratives? And when we think about just narratives, this is a thinking of um, narratives that are decided by the impacted community, not for the impacted community, by someone outside of it, right? That is for us what a just narrative is. And so I thought oh, about this. I loved it. <laughs> Let's keep going. Checklist, absolutely. This this checklist kind of comes together, and after you create a campaign, you come to the checklist to sort of say, "All right, how are we ensuring that this this campaign is just as much as we can? How can we ensure that this campaign is just?" But you know, any practitioner, any public relations practitioner, anyone who has gone to a a you know communication school uh, has a master in public relations, you name it, they've learned the cycle of communication, the race process, the method of communication called race, which starts with research, goes to action planning, then it's communicate, then it is evaluate, right? And it's, and although the acronym is race, it really doesn't have anything to do with race. <laughs> and so for us, I, I looked at that, that cycle and I said, all right, well, I know that we have to have research in the process, but how can I propose a a method of public relations that is as close to anti-racist as it can be, right? Approaches something that has a lens of anti-racism. So I said, if we're gonna do that, the practitioner needs to interrogate that research to begin with, right? Because we know that research collected over generations has a, a white lens to it and therefore a bias embedded right. in the data. So you need to interrogate that research. I'm going to give you an example of how you can apply this method in a, in a moment. Um, I said that the, the practitioner, in addition to interrogating that research, needs to acknowledge their own biases Right. Mm -hmm. If you're not going yeah. to acknowledge your own bias, you're not going you're going to put it in the communications plan. You're going That's to right. put it in the campaign. Right. Yeah. And then I said you need to go to the impacted communities to get their feedback. Right. And when you get that, that might look like surveys, that might look like focus groups, that might look like one on one qualitative interviews. But you cannot say that this is a process that that um meets that standard until you've gone to that impacted community and so i call this process the raised 
process, the raised method of the raised model of anti-racist public relations. And raised is R-A-I-S-E-D. Um, this is the alternative for me. This is the alternative to race. And it starts with research. It goes into action planning. But that A also stands for acknowledge, as in acknowledge your own biases. Right. So after you after you execute that research, you're going to go into the action planning of the communications plan or the campaign, what the video, whatever it might be. Then you're going to acknowledge your biases. What did I put into this? That is a reflection of my own biases as a practitioner, right? As a queer person, as maybe a white person, my biases as a straight white cisgender male, right? Um, what did I put into this that is baked into and how can I take that out? Then after those two pieces are done, your, um, your research, your action planning, and your acknowledgement, then we go to the I, which is interrogate. You're going to interrogate the research and then you're going to interrogate your uh, plan, you're going to interrogate your biases and try to iron all those pieces out. From there, you're always improving the plan of, across the steps. After you get to that interrogation and you've completed that step, then you go to the S, which stands for sample. You're going to go to impacted communities, take a sampling of their feedback right? And bring to them your video, your communications plan, your campaign. And you say, what in this can I improve? Right? And this, this process is inherently anti-capitalist because it's slow, right? Everything <laughs> in our industry it yep. is so intentional. <laughs> Everything in our industry is fast, right? Time is money. This is inherently anti-capitalist because it's slow. It begs the practitioner to slow down to get it right. Something that we yeah. say in my agency is you want to do it right, not rushed. And that's an important piece for us. And so you you sample your impacted community. Who is this for, right? And if it's for and you know about a, a specific community, go to that community and make sure you've gotten it right. And we recommend qualitative um, research avenues as opposed to quantitative because you can miss some things in the quantitative. Mm -hmm. So we mm -hmm. we want to have those one-on-one -on -one interviews. We want to do a focus group. Surveys are fine as long as you're, you're doing a, a qualitative survey, not the yes or no questions or the or you know the by how much questions. But instead, have you ever felt X? Does this campaign make you feel Y? Right, those sorts of things. And then that the E in raised stands for enhance. We want you to take the feedback that you got from that the community and enhance your campaign your communications plan, your video, your social media plan, whatever it is, we want you to enhance it uh, based upon the feedback that you got from the community and then finally deliver. Only after you've done these, pro these steps can you execute or deliver on that campaign. And so for us, we've developed this entire model that allows us to really gut check, really yeah. gut check the campaign to see if we are in, um, in the direction of something that approximates uh, anti-racism. Uh, I am just, wow, amazing. <laughs> yes, agree with everything that you said. That it was that is so powerful, and I think that was that was very generous of you to to share the entire model uh, with us. Um, I, I think that you know I'm putting out a podcast journal, and mm -hmm. y'all need to have written everything that she, that Mercy just shared right there and apply it to, you know, the, the way to really honor someone is to actually honor their work by doing it, like listening and, and putting it into action. Putting it into action. Apply the yeah. learning. You know, that's what we say. Another thing that we have a lot of idioms at the Narrative Project, but apply the learning is one of those idioms. It's, you know, right not rushed is another one, but apply the learning. Once you figured it out, it is unjust <laughs> to right. move forward through life without applying that learning. Yeah, absolutely. So I want to I want to switch to you know something that's been going on, especially since the beginning of uh, 2024, uh, when uh, just like all of January, it felt like in 2024, the year started with headline after headline after headline of DEI needs to DIE and you know, organizations are backing off of DEI and we, we've been kind of, we've been seeing this, you know, percolate, mm -hmm. especially mm -hmm. since the summer of 2020, 
you know, with the woke and co-opting that from the black community and using right. it as a pejorative and weaponizing it right back out. And, mm -hmm. and so there, there's a, there's a lot of this, this rhetoric and narrative, dare I say, around DEI. And in, uh, in January, I put together a really quick panel and we did this whole thing about how DEI needs a comms plan. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, <laughs> the work itself like yes there's DEI within organizations but it's like just just the work itself it needs yeah. a comms team and it yeah. needs a comms plan yep, <laughs> and absolutely. so mm -hmm. we deconstructed that and talked that through with your expertise around narratives and who controls it who's making it I think of Willie James Jennings and a, and, and a a talk that I got to see him do. He's a Yale professor. One of the questions he said at the end of his talk was, whose story are you a part of? Mm, mm. And that's really stuck with me clearly because I keep repeating it. But, you know, I relate that to this whole battle of, of the narrative around diversity, equity, inclusion, what it actually is, who it actually benefits, mm. what is it, what the work really is. And when we get caught up in terminology and narrative, yeah. you know, that's when we can ask, ask that question, like, well, whose story are we a part of? Are we going to be on the side of the billionaire bullies? You know, right. are we going to cower? Are we going to, you know, just quietly, you know, shift them some things? Are we going to be bold and say, we not only stand with, but we also withstand through the storms. Mm -hmm. So it's just mm -hmm. like, we're just unequivocal about this. So mm -hmm. it's these times of change that we're seeing society go through. It's really sharpening our character. It's really showing who's got the chops to be mm -hmm. actual leaders. Mm -hmm. um, and so, but especially from a communication standpoint, who are those communication leaders who are helping define and clarify and provide that compelling vision and story about what DEI actually is in the midst of all this, this battle over what DEI is and the narrative and, and weaponizing it. So I'd love your take from a <laughs> narrative yeah. process, you know, of like, so what, what, what do we do with this mercy? Yeah. The backlash on DEI that we've seen as of late gives me a lot of hope. And yeah. here's why. I I think of I think of the Fugitive Slave Act, right? I think of the Fugitive Slave Act because it was slavery's last stand after seeing um, you know, decades of uh you know what, what what we've been taught to refer to as escaped slaves, but I but I like to uh, now refer to them as liberation seekers, right? Mm. Escaped slaves, um, liberation seekers. We've seen we at this point in the um, the mid 1800s, we're talking about 1850, right before the war. We start to see the uh, we see the passage of the Fugitive Slave Act, and it is in response to liberation seekers getting their freedom, right? And droves of enslaved people uh, leaving the plantations of the South, moving from the North and not just settling in the North, but instead going all the way up to Canada. And so what we see in response to this huge wave and not just this wave from black people, but huge, a huge investment in liberation seeking and abolishment from white people. Right. Suddenly there is a movement of abolitionists that don't just include right blacks and natives, but instead also include and perhaps most impactfully for the time, white mothers, white women, white men. Right. Who are uh, investing into this movement. So when you start to see sentiments change towards um, softening towards race, uh, the right responds with their biggest swing and at that time it was a fugitive slave act which which was which said that if you um come across a uh, a black person who you suspect of escaping their plantation whether they're in the north or any right 
you have an obligation to return them to their plantation. It was the most brutal legislation um, up until the point because effectively up until that point, if you were lucky enough to, you know, um, forge your own freedom in the North, you got to stay there. That was the promised land. If you reach Connecticut, if you pass the Mason-Dixon, you got your freedom. Now it said, actually, the North is, is not a safe place. The North is not a safe place. You can't stop in Connecticut. You can't stop in in uh, uh, New York or uh, New Hampshire. You have to go all the way to Canada. You have to escape this country. So the reason I see the backlash towards um, DEI as hopeful now is because there's always a last stand. When you are making progress, the right has to respond with their biggest hit yet. And unfortunately, what we're seeing now is uninventive. <laughs> DEI right. must die. What must uh, DIE? Yeah. It's uninventive. It's saying yeah. it's 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 Elon Musk saying that the reason for Alaska Airlines door malfunction is DEI. That's a huge jump. We can't make <laughs> it make sense because what you're you you are no longer veiling your racism, right? It means that well well-meaning white folk can't look to that rhetoric and say, "Oh, I believe in that." Right. It, well-meaning white folk will look to this narrative and say, wait, are you saying that you that there aren't any black or brown people who are qualified to be pilots that are qualified to be CEO? You're saying there aren't any. That's that is thinly veiled, not unveiled racism. And so now it forces a white population to decide, am I a bigot? Suddenly, am I a bigot? So I think yeah. it'll backfire on the individuals who are who are um, you know utilizing DEI or woke language and weaponizing it back against the movement. I think it'll backfire because you know there's an entire group. I think of my in-laws who are from Wyoming, Colorado, and Montana, and um, I, I use that as a bit of a dog whistle because Wyoming is where they make white people, and, I, <laughs> and then they <laughs> ship them out to different places, right? And so my my in-laws are are um, white folk who are hardworking individuals and who when when confronted with really bigoted language aren't going to side with a right political wing that can use bigoted language to try to reach out to them they're going to say all right maybe i don't see color but i but right well-meaning white folk don't see color right of course maybe i don't see color but i can actually see through your thinly veiled racism um and i can actually say that my my daughter-in-law this, or, you know, not even my daughter-in-law, the person that comes to my church is X and a hardworking person just like I am. And if you're saying that he's not qualified, then I must not be qualified. And I can see right through that. And so I think it's going to backfire. I think that people who are on the fence when it comes to racial dynamics will start to lean more left because they don't see themselves as bigots. They can't, they can't see themselves as outright racist. And it'll backfire for that reason. Yeah, yeah, I, I completely agree. There's a lot of room for people to be like, no, I, you know, the civility invitation is, is even more wide open now. And, exactly. and to your point of, of the, um, <clears throat> the Fugitive Slave Act, that kind of desperation mm -hmm. to pit communities against each other. Yep has been replicated to this day. If you think of transgender. transgender uh, okay. Yeah. yeah let's mm -hmm. yeah. So you're, you have to tell on somebody else who's looking to, you know, seeking an abortion or leaving the state or you mm -hmm. have you're to tell them and for transgender rights to live, teachers are supposed to turn in or parents, yep. you know, it's turn in parents or turn in students and not use their, you know, their um, uh, pronouns, et cetera. So there's this law, these, this, this idea of putting laws in place where we turn on each other and mm -hmm. the fear of if I don't, it's like, it's also like interracial marriage as well. So it's just like, mm -hmm. there's just this, this playbook that continues to show up. Over and if and history is taught, taught as accurate, accurate history, if history is taught us, you know, mm -hmm. anything, when we learn through it, it's just like, 
And so the more and more we can recognize where we are being potential, pr- purposefully mm-hmm. put, pitted against each other. And we're seeing this in the, in the workforce where there's a lot of commentary that can come for, out of employees on an internal, you know, messaging uh, dashboards and whatnot. Um, mm-hmm. Yammer, Slack, whatever it may be. We're seeing this division, which throughout the year of 2024 is likely going to increase as we get closer to the, the presidential election. So if we're not preparing our our cultures for this and recognizing that each other, your colleagues, Mm -hmm. melanated, straight, you know, gay um, women, what, you know, uh, with disabilities, we are not each other's enemies, right? We are not the enemy and we, we cannot allow, cannot, the, the, the gig is up. We're, we're not falling for that. And so, Seeing through these purposeful constructs to pit us against each other mm-hmm. based on fear when it is not serving anyone, um, it's actually increasing fear. Um, you know, we, we just can't, we just can't stand for it. We can't, right. we, can't we can't stand for it. Uphold it. I, and I think we, we, I say what I say not to undermine the brilliance of a campaign that uses narratives to pit people against each other. I cannot undermine it because it would be, it would be ill-advised to ignore how strategic campaigns like that actually do fester and work. We, we see yeah. how the Nazis, right, um, yeah. pit an entire, an entire country against the Jews. Yeah. These messages and these narratives work. But I think what ends up happening is if the pendulum swings too quickly, you have people who are are moderate and in the middle who are otherwise decent people who can't see themselves being bigoted, right? And once we are able to, on our side, name things like bigoted, go away from just using the word racist, but use bigoted and define bigoted, right? Define racist as structural, systemic, absolutely. But who are we as individuals, right? Who can you be? Who do you see? How do we see racism materialize in an individual? That's bigotry, right? If we can name those things and give people an example of what not to be, but also, and probably more importantly, an example of what to be, yeah. I think what we can do is change around an entire culture, community, nation to a direction that is more just and anti-racist. And all anyone is looking for is freedom and liberation to go back to the beginning of your example. And so, yeah, you're free to not understand transgender people. You are not free to take away their rights to health, life, opportunity. That's the, that's the line that, that we, we don't go across. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, oh my gosh, we could keep talking and talking and talking. (laughs) And and I love this. And there's already projects I'm thinking of that, uh, uh, that are brewing that I want to partner with you on, Mercy. So I really (laughs) encourage people who who are, you know, communication practitioners, who are PR agencies, branding agencies, the anti-racism you know, talking about anti-racism, how do you have an anti-racist lens on your communications plans, on your strategies and on your narratives? That's what Mercy and the Narrative Project does. So how, I'm going to ask you this last question I can ask every guest, and then I would love for you to share how people can get in contact with you and work with you, follow you. Um, But how, what does it sound like and look like to communicate like you give a damn? Yeah. It is avoiding pandering. And the only way to avoid pandering is to be incredibly authentic, right? I'm going to, I'm going to show up and I'm going to use the words that I've been, you know, that have been ingrained in me from a child. And I'm going to relate to a community based upon who I am as a person. I'm not going to change that person, but the line that people, particularly politicians cross into pandering, what's right before that is understanding, right? When you come into a community and you deeply understand that community, you don't have to speak the way they speak. You don't have to say you have hot sauce in your bag, right? You don't have to speak in front of, right? You don't have to do these things. You don't have to talk in front of a black congregation and uh, sing Amazing Grace or say, I don't feel no ways tied. I swear 
to you, Kim, if I see another white politician yep. in front of a black congregation, yep. use the phrase, I don't feel no way tied. Yeah. <laughs> like, you, you don't can't even say like it right. You can't even say it right, you know? <laughs> so you can understand a population without trying to appropriate, without trying to adopt their ways of speech, their, 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 their um, candor. You don't have to do that. You can say, listen, I also watch X and I feel Y and Z without somehow saying, you know, the saison that I have in, in my cabinet makes my fried chicken even, you don't have to do these things. Understanding right. is a step right before pandering, right? And to communicate like you give a damn means give a damn about understanding populations that don't look like you. <laughs> I love it. I loved your references. That was really <laughs> cracking me up. So uh, if you don't know what she's referring to, please look it up because you need to see it for yourself. It just, it's, yeah, the, the pandering, especially as it increases in a presidential election year, um, it's so obvious and it makes me sad um, mm -hmm. uh, because we're missing the point and that's when we're dipping into performative and exactly. it's, this is where language leads to behavior and, and yeah, so much, so much. Okay. So how, uh, so what's your website and how can people contact you? So again, I was so surprised that this domain name wasn't taken. <laughs> it is the narrative project.com. <laughs> You can find us just by using the name. Um, if you search the Narrative Project, uh, Public Relations Agency will also come up, but you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Threads. We have divested from Twitter um, at the Narrative Project on all three of those channels. Um, and I am looking forward to uh, meeting you, speaking with you, and figuring out how we can forge a more just society together. Yes. Beautiful. Beautiful. Please reach out to Mercy. Follow her. Sign up. You, I assume you have a newsletter or something people Absolutely. can subscribe yep. to. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's beautiful. Beautiful. Yes. We have divested from X as soon as um, the ownership transfer uh, happened uh, that April. Um, so this was a real pleasure, a real Thank honor so to, me, to listen to the work that you do, the impact that you have. Uh, you, uh, you came up through communications. You understand what we as practitioners, as well as agency folks, we, you know, kind of the pressures, the performative system that we're put in. So you can under, you can understand and empathize. Like, I get it. I get it. You've got these pressures. You've got white leaders. You don't know what they're talking about. How do we strategically advise them through this? And there's a lot of things within our control, like your framework. That is something we can just do. We don't have to have, we don't have to get permission. There's exactly. no budget attached to it. Nothing. It's like, it's there. Start doing there. it. Start there. But get yep. deeper into the work with Mer Mercy. Bring her and her team in and, and get deeper into the work and have that lens on your communication strategies moving forward. Any last words, Mercy? No last words. If you want to learn more about, I'll just say if you want to learn more about the uh, raised model of public relations, you can find that at our on our website. And if you are interested, if you're a nonprofit organization and you're interested in applying this to your work, please reach out to us and we'll help you do so. Wonderful. Thank you. I'm glad you are alive. I'm glad that you are doing the, the work that you do. And I look forward to continuing to learn from you. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me, Kim.